Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is Wednesday morning, and I'm drinking a hot cup of Bottom Gun Coffee from my friends at BottomGunCoffee.com. This is another midweek episode release, and then the reason I'm doing it is I have so many interviews that I've done recently that I want to make sure that I get them out to you as quickly as I can. So I'll be releasing two episodes a week for the foreseeable future. So enjoy this special episode. I have another great show lined up for you, but before we get started, I just wanted to mention my latest leadership book. It's called You Have the Watch, and it's available for sale on my website and on Amazon. In fact, it's already a number one new release and a bestseller on Amazon. I'm excited about this book because it's not actually a book. It's a guided journal for leaders that'll take you through an entire year of leadership training. There are 50 themes in the book, and each day you'll reflect on a different facet of that theme. Now, this journal is designed to be on your desk at work for you to read and reflect on for about 15 minutes each morning. Leadership skills are just like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them, and this journal helps you practice those skills. So if you're interested in this guided journal, go to youhavethewatch.com or Amazon to pick up your copy today. If you're looking for other ways to support what I do on this show, purchase any one of my books at johnsrenny.com. Podcast listeners can use the discount code DEEP at checkout to get additional savings. Well, that is it. Today, my guest is Daryl Stickle. Daryl's an expert on the subject of trust. He's the founder of Trust Unlimited and the author of a new book called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Now, if I were to point out the most important characteristic of a great company culture, it would be that there is a high level of trust in the organization. This was such a good discussion, and I know it's going to help you become a more effective leader. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Daryl Stickle. Daryl has devoted his career to understanding trust, what it is, how it functions, and how to increase it. He holds a PhD in business from Duke University and wrote his doctoral thesis on building trust 
in hostile environments. After leaving McKinsey & Company in 2001, Daryl founded Trust Unlimited. His clients have included financial services, telecoms, tech, families, and the Canadian military in Afghanistan. He's the author of a new book coming out later this year called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Now, trust is essential to leadership, so I'm honored to have Daryl on the show to talk about it. So, Daryl, welcome. Thanks, John. It's such a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's great for you to uh, great to see you. Great to have you on the show, and I'm excited about this book. I have it right here for those who are watching uh, on YouTube. There's a copy of the book. It's a beautiful uh, book, and it's the the subject is so important. And I'm really uh, excited that you wrote this book, and I'm excited to have you here to talk about it. But I wanted to just get started. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background because. For me, it's hard to understand how does somebody who grew up in Fort St. John, Canada, end up developing a brand new model for understanding trust? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, uh, I won't say it was easy. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes a hard road is a good teacher. Um, mm. Fort St. John was a small sort of relatively isolated community, about 15,000 people when I grew up there. Um, I was born and raised there. And, and there was a sense of community. Um, because it was sort of harsh climate and isolated, people had to help each other. And you grew up knowing that if somebody else was stuck on the side of the road, you pulled over to help. And if someone was in trouble, you lent a hand. And so I developed a strong sense of, of obligation to help people if I could. And I think, you know, I, I, Grew up playing hockey. I, I suffered a number of concussions. I had a number of things happen in my life that gave me a level of empathy and understanding for people that was maybe a little bit more than normal. And I would find myself sitting on the bus on the on the way to school in Victoria when I when I moved there to go to university, and strangers would just sit down next to me and say, "I'm really having a hard day," and so. I thought if this is going to keep happening to me, maybe I should get paid for this. Um, and so I started uh, working with families in crisis and troubled teens and working on crisis lines and those kinds of things. And I was going to become a clinical psychologist. And about partway through that, I started to realize a lot of the people I was working with, families in particular, you could see what the problem was and you could see a path forward, but they were simply doing the best they could. And they couldn't get from A to B. And I, I thought this will drive me insane. And so I switched, went into public administration, did a master's degree in public admin, ended up working in native land claims in British Columbia, which was one of the last places to settle claims in the world uh, with indigenous populations. And I was a research analyst. and They would ask me these sort of deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people that we've treated terribly for over a hundred years, they should trust us. And I thought, wow, that's a really good question. Mm. And it gets to some of those long-term disputes and, and um, it had me thinking about, you know, the interactions that I've had. And, and, and so I went to Duke and, and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. Um, and I was fortunate to have, two incredible experts on the topic of trust present at Duke while I was there. Uh, Sim Sitkin and Karen Cook were, were on my thesis committee. 
And they sat me down after I finished and they said, you know, when you first came to us, we thought six months, we'll give him six months. He'll come back to us, say it's way too hard. There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> and we'll let him chisel off a little piece of that. And that'll be his thesis. And they said, six months in, you were so far beyond us. We couldn't help anymore. Mm, wow. And said, all we could do is sit and watch him. And we think you've solved it. And so I, you know, uh, had the good fortune of getting an offer from McKinsey and Company. And I went there to work as a consultant. Um, and they, they decided I had really good client hands. So they decided, you know, what we should do is send you to the worst places possible. Um, you know, we're, wherever we're having disputes or clients are un, unhappy or, uh, you know, there's been a labor dispute we're going to send you in. And so I was getting a chance to practice and apply the materials that I'd studied for so long. And, you know, I, I ended up uh, being injured on the way to a client site. I ended up with post-concussion syndrome. I had a, a mild to moderate traumatic brain injury, which meant I couldn't work 80 hours a week anymore. And so I left and started a small consulting firm called Trust Unlimited. And uh, my first client was a financial services company. One of my former colleagues at McKinsey asked me to come in and just talk to them. And they asked me to talk about sustainable competitive advantage. And I, I said, well, that means you do something better than your competition and they can't copy it. And I said, you're a financial services company. You're forced to be transparent. There's nothing you do I can't copy. You know, I could buy one share of every fund you've designed. But now I know how they're all built. I don't have to pay the fund advisors. I can sell what you sell at a discount. I said, the only thing you could do is build deep long-term relationships with your customers. And they said, that's it. That's our strategy. And so for the, they paid me to develop a workshop uh, based on my thesis. And I spent the next 18 months training and coaching and consulting and helping them understand what trust was and how it worked. And after that, they hired a professional survey firm, found out the trust was the primary driver of the sales decision that they were dramatically more trusted than any of their competitors. And they generated 75 cents of every new dollar that came into the industry for the next two years. And they were part of a global financial services company. And, and that company started sending teams from all over the world to figure out what these guys in Canada were doing because they were dominating, not just Canada, but the rest of the world. Yeah. And, interesting. Yeah. And so I knew, you know, what I have may not be perfect, but it works. And so I spent the next 20 years helping people solve problems. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. The trust was sort of the, 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 the magic pill, if you will, that, that unleashed, uh, you know, that was their, their strategic advantage, right? They found that as like, if we could build trust with our client base, then that's, and they keep coming to us for advice, then that's how we're going to continue to grow and continue to get more business. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's it's funny because we think, you know, sales, right? We think of the traditional sales role. It's like, oh, you know, features and benefits and all that sort of thing. No, it's really about building trust with your with your customer, so that they're going right. to come to you, even if they don't buy anything from you. They come from you, you know, to you for advice, and then when there's an opportunity, they come to you for a product. Yeah, and you create this sort of safe harbor for them, where they're able to take risks where they're able to put themselves out there. And, you know, we, if we think about leadership, leadership, you know, the more senior we become, the less direct control we have over outcomes. And the more dependent we become on those we lead to reach our goals and objectives, to, to make our dreams come true, to have impact in the world. 
the thing that separates leaders who are merely okay from those who are exceptional is the ability to build relationships. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. My first book, I, I talk about leadership as a people business. It's all about relationships and people and it's, it's critical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so um, one of the things you talk about in the book, and, and this is something I've, I've been seeing a lot lately uh, and you touch on this is uh, why is trust in our institutions at an all time low? Do you think? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I just I just attended a conference at Duke. Uh, you and I were just talking about the fact that we've got an overlap there. We do. Um, yeah, I talked, I attended a virtual conference put on about rebuilding trust in institutions. Mm. And, and the overwhelming consensus was it's bad. Um, mm. You know, the, trust is at an all time low. I think a lot of it. So for my, from my perspective, when we decide whether to trust somebody or not, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The first question is how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty. The second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad's it going to hurt? Which is perceived vulnerability. Mm. And we've seen dramatic spikes in uncertainty. And so the world is in flux. It's changing at an incredible pace. We're seeing our society sort of come apart at the seams a little bit um, with you know, disagreements about political ideology, disagreements about uh, race and gender disagreements about pandemics, about political ideology. Um, all of these things are happening at the same time that we're having this significant spike in uncertainty. Mm. And in part, you know, I like to think about the, the question, and I know that there are bad guys in the world. Uh, Putin has done a wonderful job of demonstrating that to us right. lately. But what if there were no bad guys? What if this was just a case of the systems in place actually pushing behavior that's not optimal? What if what if the reason we're not getting great leadership in the political spectrum is because that's not a great job for most people? And we're not attracting the people that we want to attract. We're not getting the best folks that we could mm. that are best suited for that role. Instead, we're getting the ones who are willing to put up with it. Right. So I think that's a big part of, um, you know, we're seeing so much information coming at people at such a rapid pace. And now everyone's questioning everything. Uncertainty's through the roof. And so it's kind of normal for trust to, to go into decline at those times. But it also, the more scarce something becomes, the more valuable it becomes. Mm. And so the ability to build trust is, is more valuable now than it's ever been. Yeah, that's actually, that's, that's so true. That's so true. Um, so, you know, when you get into, um, you know, if you take yourself into the, the leader's role and, and you're trying to build trust, what are some challenges that leaders face when they're, you know, you come into a new role, you know, say you're taking over a new business uh, and you, you know that trust is important. What are some of the challenges that leaders face when they're trying to, to build trust in an organization? Well, a big part of the challenge with trust in general is a lack of awareness. Hmm. And so people aren't, you know, they may realize that trust is really important, but but have a lack of a, an applied practical approach to actually taking action on that. Um, but again, they're facing uncertainty like we've never seen before as well, right? The, hmm. the nature of the, of the uh, job market is changing. The expectations and morals and values of the people that work for them are changing. 
there's there's a struggle for us to even have conversations without people getting profoundly and mortally wounded. And so as a leader, you find yourself with a very diverse group of people, some of whom are going to be profoundly offended no matter what you say or do. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and this is one of the challenges that our political leaders face right now. You know, they spent so long vilifying one another that we we now fully believe them. They're all incompetent and, and evil. <laughs> right. Um, you know, they should stop digging anytime now. Um, but leaders of today face the challenge of I've got a workforce that's comprised of people who have very different values, and I'm facing headwinds from profound uncertainty um, with you know climate change, with with technological change and advancement, with changes in values and norms and, and ideology. How do I approach that in a way that builds consensus, that creates collaborative collective action rather than discord? And that's, you know, leaders are facing a more pronounced change now than than we've seen in quite some time. You know, the questions we get asked sometimes is, how do I I motivate a virtual team? Or how do I motivate, you know, the next generation of employees who are coming up who have a different set of values than I do around work and success? and, um, And so... Leaders today are facing a pretty significant challenge, and it's not going to go away. Hmm. Um, our kids are facing a significant challenge entering the workforce uh, because there's going to be so much variance. And, and I, I believe that understanding how to build trust and how to structure relationships is one of the ways to future-proof ourselves. It's that ability to have people give you the benefit of the doubt, to actually hmm. ask you if that's what you meant before jumping to conclusions to say to you, Hey, that might not have ended the way you wanted it to, or what is the message you're trying to send? Let me help you with that. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. Well, it's interesting you say, because we, we talked a little bit before we started this podcast, you know, you you grew up in a small town where you would help people, you you know, if something, you felt a shared responsibility uh, for yeah. your neighbors because you were a small town and it was a, you know, a rough climate. Uh, and so you, there was a shared responsibility. And and, and I, I started my career on a submarine as an officer on a submarine. And it was the right. same thing. We had a shared we had a shared responsibility and we had a shared vulnerability, right? So if we made a mistake, we would all perish, right? So we had to trust each other. Well, we had to train each other up and make sure that every person on that submarine, including the most junior sailor was, uh, could have our back when things went wrong. And so we had to trust our lives to our fellow sailors, right? So, So we had that unique environment where we were one team. We had one mission. We had to we had to carry out our mission, 
but but then we had to return safely home and everybody was on board with that mission so we were to collectively together so we learned to trust each other because we we had to and i think maybe it's, yeah. it's similar in your small town experience where you had to, you had to trust each other because you you were vulnerable you had a shared responsibility shared vulnerability similar to my 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 situation and what i saw when my time in corporate i worked 22 years in corporate is that there wasn't that same collective feeling towards a towards a, a goal everybody as you as you mentioned is was motivated by their own uh unique uh desires right whether it's right. personal desires to to grow move up the corporate ladder or uh you know they wanted the the corporation to do things in the community or, you know, everybody is kind of coming at uh, work from a different, they have different goals that they bring to the organization. Right. And so uh, we don't, didn't have that share. We didn't have that shared uh, responsibility and shared vulnerability like I did on the submarine. So I find yeah. that that was, that's probably one of the, it's like you said, it's one of the challenges as leaders in this new era that, you're going to have all these, you know, different, you have, you have employees with all these different uh, backgrounds and histories and, and, and political and, 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 and different, and you've got to try to get them all, you know, moving in one direction. And it, I think right. it's harder today than it ever has been. I agree. And it's, it's this whole notion of collective collaborative action, right? Yes. Yes. And I, I, I look at some of the big hairy problems we see in the world, things like climate change, things like race relations or the relationship between the police and the, the communities they serve or political splits. The, all of those things are complex problems. Yes. I think of them as, as big hairy problems and yeah. we can't solve them by ourselves. Right. And we need a level of collective collaborative action to resolve them. And unfortunately, trust is at the lowest levels we've ever seen. Yeah, and that—that's—that's that's part of my mission is to try. Like, I still like to help people. I still want to help people, and that's my—that's why I've written the book, and that's—that's that's my passion. And I, when I work with leaders, I help them build stronger relationships, not just with those they lead, but with their families, with their community, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, I and I see that you're doing it, and I'm and I'm I'm thankful for it because I think it's so critical. Uh, so talk talk to us about your trust unlimited model that you have in the book. Right. Uh, what is it, and why is it so different from uh, uh, the way we've looked at trust in the past? There's a there's a few things that the existing trust literature does really well, but there's a lot of things that they don't include. And so when I started looking at the model, I I looked at it from a multidisciplinary perspective. You know, academics speak for I, I took different frames of reference and thought about it from different perspectives. And a lot of the existing trust literature really talks about uncertainty. You remember at the start, I said, we ask ourselves two questions. Yeah. And uncertainty and vulnerability act as the basis for trust. And so if we think about uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And if our perception of that risk goes beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if it's beneath it, then we do. And if we think about it from this frame of reference, it all of a sudden becomes fairly simple. Building trust means reducing perceptions of uncertainty and reducing perceptions of vulnerability. Interesting. And so the steps I take are really practical and applied. I start talking about where does uncertainty come from? Well, it comes from us as individuals and it comes from the setting we're embedded in, the context. And 95% of the trust literature talks about that first piece. 
the trustworthiness, the, the elements of us that drive people to either trust us or not. And there's virtually no work done on the context. You know, what are the, which, which, you know, you think about the fact that you walk into a doctor's office and they say, take off your clothes and you do, right? Yes, you do. That doesn't happen in other environments, John. Well, hopefully. You know, if, if, we, <laughs> if, we, if we change that to a, a restroom at a gas station, right, it goes from credible to creepy in a heartbeat, right? Mm-hmm. It can even be the same people dressed in the same way. And so we, the existing models don't do a great job of explaining why we trust some people immediately and others not, ah, or we distrust people immediately. And so, so context plays a pretty significant role. The other gap is, is around vulnerability. And so a lot of the literature, a lot of the discussion treats trust like it's a, a dichotomous variable, like it, it's either present or absent, like an old school light switch. And the reality is we trust some people more than others. And as soon as I say that, everyone goes, well, of course, that this, this is obvious. How'd this guy get a PhD? Um, but overwhelmingly, our, our minds go to this dichotomous place. And so if we don't include vulnerability, we can't talk about depths of relationship. Mm-hmm. We can't talk about you know, building a stronger relationship. As the relationship evolves, it means the uncertainty starts to go down, Yes, which means the range of vulnerability we can tolerate from that other person goes up. Yes. That's what a deeper relationship looks like. Interesting. And so those were a couple of elements that hadn't really been included. Um, I also talk about perceived outcomes and the fact that we interpret the world through stories. So we have this Mm. interaction. I decide whether to trust you or not. And then I evaluate the outcome. And I look at that outcome and decide, should I trust John again the next time we interact or not? And so it acts as input for our next interaction or the next time I interact with someone that reminds me of you, right? So if you're, if you're a corporate leadership and I have an interaction with you, then I start to think, well, he's part of leadership. So if I have a good experience, then I can start to trust leadership a little more. If I have a bad one, I trust it a little less. Right. And so. We can we can take steps in each of these modules, each of these settings. You know, we can take steps to reduce uncertainty and be systematic about it. We can take steps to understand people's vulnerability, their perception of vulnerability, and take steps to reduce that. We can we can try to develop a shared narrative. One of the things you talk about on the submarine is shared vulnerability. You've got a shared story. Yeah. And that's powerful. And once we start having conversations with people about well, what does a good outcome look like? Hey, all of us getting home looks like a pretty good outcome. Exactly. Yeah, we had a we had a we had a common we had a common mission. We have a shared mission, and, a, yeah. and we and it was intrinsic, right? Like we nobody would nobody on that submarine would argue that our mission our our goal was to achieve our mission and get home safely. Everyone, yeah, it was it very it was in our DNA, right? We didn't have no yeah. one had to give a speech about it because we knew that's what we were here to do. And yeah. And having that shared mission, that shared uh, goal, if you will, um, that 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 clears the air of a lot of things, right? So, so it really does. you know, it, it, because there's you you take that um, you take that I guess that uncertainty out of the way because we all are are trying to get towards that same mission and yeah. uh, get home safely. But the other thing you touched on, I think is really important from a vulnerability standpoint, is this idea of depths of relationships. This is something yeah. that I've, is profound, and it's something I think is missing in a lot of even leadership literature. And, I, of course, I've tried to include in my books, but 
you know, one of the things I noticed is that the more we share common experiences, right, the more we have these opportunities to share common experiences, the, the, the deeper our relationships build, right? And um, yes. it's like that with uh, with your children or your spouse or, you know, the, the more you have these experiences where you see things the same way, oh, that customer did that, we're not going to do that again. And we all see it the same way in the organization. We know yeah. we're probably not going to try to do business with that customer again. But I see a Absolutely. lot of cases in, in big companies is that everybody has a different perception of what's happening in the organization because they don't share common experiences. The salespeople see, oh, we got that great, we got that order, it's great. Production people are like, well, that's you know, that's a product we don't have. We have to get special parts for it. And then the accountants see that the margins aren't there, and they're upset. So everybody sees the problem differently. Yeah. And uh, and and trying to build shared experiences where we all see things in a similar way uh, that builds that depth of relationship that we we're all on the same team. We're not on separate teams. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and in the middle of all this are our feelings, our emotions, whether we yes. like or dislike yeah. somebody else. Yes, and all the existing literature treats people like they're rational actors. <laughs> they're I, not. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I don't know if you've met people before, John, but hmm. um, but they're not always rational. No, and no. and this is where the challenge comes in for these hostile environments. The the sort of the so what of my doctoral thesis was understanding that a lot of times we're approaching these problems from a cognitive rational actor perspective. Yes, and there's a pretty profound emotional component. Yes. And if we aren't able to reset that somehow, to, to get that to a more neutral state, to find places where we overlap and agree and like one another, it's a pretty significant challenge. Yes. And, you know, love and hate are blind. And, and this is part of the place where the political discourse, particularly in places like the U.S., has gone, where people have become emotionally entrenched and triggered. And we're trying to float rational conversation to them and it's not landing yeah. from either side. I see that. I do a lot of tweets on leadership issues. And so I'll tweet something and then someone will take it like a political thing. Well, you don't like Biden? Or like, well, at least he's not Trump. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, I'm talking about some, I'm not even talking about political issues. So yeah. they, yeah. they immediately get triggered towards you're in one camp or the other camp, right? And, yeah. and maybe I'm not in either camp. Maybe I'm trying, maybe I don't care about politics and I'm just talking about leadership. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. 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 And so it, it that emotional chaff can can really disrupt conversations. And if, if yeah. that's where the gap is, if that's where the hole is, then we need to intervene there first. Mm. Yep. And, and so those are some of the things that really set my work apart from the majority of the other research. And I, you know, we all have the ability to build trust. Some are better than others. Hmm. And those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull. And they pull it over and over again and hope it lines up with the problem that they're facing. Right. Those who are better have multiple levers that they pull. And those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that. You talk about that in the book, the trust, trust levers. And uh, so, uh, like you said, the, the more, I guess the, the, I guess someone that's, there's different leaders or have these levers they can pull. And like you said, the best of leaders have many levers and they know when to pull it. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So if we, if we thought just about uncertainty, for example, uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals and it comes from the context. And within the individual environment, 
you know, a good friend of mine, Roger Mayer, wrote a seminal work in 1995 about uh, trustworthiness. And he he and his colleagues proposed that there were three elements that made, made us seem trustworthy. And those were benevolence, integrity, and ability. And benevolence is, do you have my best interest at heart? Will you act in my best interest, even if it's not in your own short-term best interest? Integrity is, do I follow through on my promises? And are my actions aligned with the values that I express? And abilities, do I actually have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? So those are three levers that we can pull. Most people pull the ability lever relentlessly. I have this much experience. I have these kinds of credentials. I have this many people that work for me. On and on and on. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the lever that has the most impact for leaders is benevolence. Yeah. Is that belief that you're, you've got my back. You know, you had some folks on earlier who were talking about the servant leader model. Yeah. That's what that is. Mm. Right. It's, and so, you know, when I talk to people, I talk about how do we actually pull those levers? Um, because part of the challenge is getting a shared frame of reference, thinking about it in terms of uncertainty and vulnerability. Yep. And then it's what are the sub, sub elements? And so there's that cognitive piece of understanding. And then there's the application. And this is the place where we've really been working hard lately. This is what the book is intended to do. It's, it's intended to show people, here's how you could try this. Here's some things you could do to, to give it a shot. Um, so, you know, when I work with parents, I'll say, who here has their kid's best interest at heart? And all the hands go up. Right. It's a stirring sight, right? And then I say, how many of your kids would say that? And it's about a third, somewhat hesitantly. And so... If it doesn't land clearly in a situation where it's supposed to be obvious, how hard is it for a leader to actually communicate benevolence to a group that's got wide-ranging views and expectations? And a big part of the challenge here is that, you know, I'll talk with leaders and they'll say, well, I do all those things. And my response will be, says who? Because if it's me telling you that I'm benevolent, that has a lot less weight than you saying to me, Daryl, I really experienced that as benevolence. Mm. And so a lot of times we don't include other people in the conversation. We make assumptions about what good looks like for them. And we don't clarify or make transparent the fact that we're acting in a way that's intended to be in their best interest. And so, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking with folks, I'll say, here's the script. Here's the approach you're going to take to actually having a conversation with someone because you know, we we have the book and we have these classes that we deliver. There, there are these eight-week courses where we take people systematically through the model. And we say, you're going to pick two relationships and you're going to focus on those two relationships. And this week, you're going to talk about benevolence. And here's what that's going to look like. Because so many of them said to me, how do I even start? Yeah. And so, so it's, hey, you know what? I'm taking this course on trust. I'm trying to be more intentional about the relationships I, I, uh, I have in my life. I'm trying to build stronger relationships. Oh, that's kind of interesting, Daryl. What? Tell me more about it. I'm kind of interested. And then you say, well, and one of the things they talk about is benevolence, having someone else's best interest at heart. Yeah. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person goes, oh, God, yeah. You know, I, with my <laughs> yeah. kids or with my spouse or this right. other thing. And then you say, well, have you ever had someone really have your back, really look out for you? What did that look like? What did it feel like? What did they do? And so you start them thinking about this stuff. And then you say, well, what would it look like if I acted in your best interest? 
what does success look like for you and how do I help you get there? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so one of the questions you asked me, or I asked you before we started, this was how can I be helpful to you, John? Mm-hmm. And you said, share this, you know, help raise the profile of the podcast. I'm absolutely going to do that. And I'm going to do that because it's not only in my interest, but it's in your interest as well. And I feel right. like we're collaborating in this endeavor to try to reach broader audiences. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that really makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, you know, I mean, think that, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, having these discussions and, and, um, uh, this, this idea of having, having, you know, do you have my back is something that I I've, I've, I've talked about it. I've shared it. In fact, it's one of the stories I use when I'm at Duke University is I share a story of a manager who I, uh, when I first got into the uh, the work world, I was an R&D uh, engineer and we developed a product. And the first time we went to the test lab, it completely failed and it blew up right. and it was very spectacular. And it was front of a lot of people and it was a very visible product uh, project. And, uh, and I thought it was the end of my career, but instead that that boss had my back he he knew that I was doing something that was very difficult, and he asked me two questions, and which one was, "Do you know why it failed?" And the second thing is, "Can you fix it?" And those right. two questions, yeah, and those two questions said to me that he trusted me, he had my back, and he 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 wanted me to fix the fix the product and get back to the test lab, and we did, and we ended up you know having this product that was an industry killer. And we, we, we just, we just became, you know, we had all the patents and we were the first to the market of some amazing product, but it was right. all because one leader had my back. It had my best in, he, he, he stood up for me when, when something bad happened. And so he put his career at risk to protect my career because he knew it was in the best interest for the project and for his engineer. And so, right. but it sits right on what you're talking about with benevolence as far as he pulled that lever hard and guess, guess how much I trusted him. Guess how much I put, I yeah. worked hard for that guy afterwards. I mean, cause he had pulled that lever really hard. Yeah. Um, and you're willing to go through a wall for that person. Absolutely. And, and still to this yeah. day, I talk about him every time I'm at Duke and, and it's, you know, it's something I was 20 something years old and I still, I'll never forget that, you know? Yeah. And this is, this is the thing is, is so many of the leaders I talk with now say to me, I can't make a mistake. Yeah. Well, if you think, if you think you can't make a mistake, then that means you think your people can't make a mistake. Right. That means you're right. going to micromanage the crap out of them. Right. And that, that means you're not creating an environment where people are comfortable innovating or trying new things, or learning, or growing, or developing. And, you know, we've got to be in an environment where we're comfortable taking risks. Yeah. And, and and that's that's part of where the benevolence piece comes in, right? Is we need to create, and uh, Amy Edmondson does a great job talking about psychological safety. And this is part of that, right? Is, yeah. is when we're looking out for others' interests, when we're making them feel safe and comfortable, we can innovate like no one else can. And in the environments we're headed into, that's the leadership we need. We yeah. need people creating an environment where folks are comfortable learning. And, you know, one of your recent podcasts, you, you were talking about the fact that leaders need to take risks. They need to strive into new places. This is, this is exactly the challenge we're facing. They need to be more vulnerable. Yes. And they need to let go of the things that they're comfortable with and allow other people to learn those things. And to trust yeah. them and to... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on this, too. I was thinking about it as you mentioned it, that that trust and micromanagement is kind of an issue, right? If you don't trust 
your employees, right? You tend to micromanage them. You do trust them. You give them that leeway to, to, to bring their best selves to, to, to work every day. And, uh, yeah. you know, and where do you stand on that, on that spectrum? Are, are, you know, are, do you trust your employees to, to do the right thing or do you, do you feel like you can't trust them? You know, and I see that a lot in, in a lot of leaders where they, 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 they tend to micromanage me because they fear there's going to be a mistake. Right. And they, right. and they can't tolerate mistakes and mistakes are, you know, in the, in the military, they were really good at letting us fail in a controlled manner because they believed that failure was one of the best teaching tools. And as you were saying, right. companies that can innovate and move fast, they tend to uh, be uh, forgiving cultures where you can make mistakes. You're trying new things all the time and you can make mistakes. And it's not the end of your career, or the end of your, uh, your, your job. Right. It's just, it's part of the iterative process of, of, of doing, you know, doing difficult things. And I think companies right. that create that culture, there's a high level of trust. You have my back if something goes wrong, right? Because we're on a common right. mission to do something that's never been done before, you know? Well, and there's a positive story, right? Like I talk about, uh, when I talk about my sons who are, you know, I have two sons, Thomas and Alexander, they're the center of my world. Yes. And I tell parents, I say, you know, I have a relentlessly positive story. And so if they mess up, it's not, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think that they're trying, I don't think it personal. I think it's part of their learning curve. Right. And I think it's an opportunity for me to come alongside and coach and say, okay, what went wrong there? You know, like your boss was doing, you know, what went wrong? Can you fix it? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, one of the hardest things I had to do with my sons was learn how to get out of the way to Mm. let them make mistakes. Yes. Um, because I found myself going, oh, there's a rake, there's a rake, there's a rake. Don't step on that rake. Yeah. And and I, I realized what they're learning is dad knows where the rakes are. Right, right. Yeah. And so instead, I needed to come alongside and say, wow, you just stepped on a rake. That looked like it hurt. <laughs> yes. How do we avoid that in the future? What were some of the signals that that was coming? Exactly. And how do we yes. respond now? Yeah, yeah. Right? Because as I say that crap happens, it's how we respond that matters. Yeah, yeah. That's where the learning comes. You know, we 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 try to keep people from failing, like children, right? We we try to protect yeah. them, keep them from failing, but failure is how we learned, right? That's how we develop. That's you know, the the tough times in my life are the things I'm most thankful for, right? The things where I right. uh, the difficult things I, I had to go through made me who I am. And so why should we prevent that from our kids from having those experiences and learning those things? And and yeah. I think that uh uh, you know, failure is a powerful teaching tool. And we have to allow for that, and uh, and you know, we have to trust that it's <laughs> that they're, they're they are going to learn from that, and they're going to and they're going to get better from it. So, yeah, exactly. And we we can be coaches or we can be critics, right? Right. And so, to the extent that we're able to come alongside and help them learn from those lessons, so they don't have to repeat them over and over again, uh, that's that's powerful. Yeah, and it's the absolutely. same thing as a leader. Absolutely. Well, um, this this book, it's called Building Trust. For, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, here it is again. It's a blue book. It's called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Um, Daryl, when does this book come out? It comes out on June 7th. And I, gotta, I, I have to tell you, like, I feel like I'm dropping grains of sand in the ocean. <laughs> yes. And, and what I'm hoping is that you and your listeners will help me pick up some big rocks. Yeah. Because I think there's the potential to actually make a difference in the world, to actually build higher trust levels. We can do it. I've seen it. I've, I've seen so many examples of it. 
And yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the hostile environment up where you're from and, 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 and the, you know, why you were motivated to get into trust issues in the beginning. And yeah, I think it can be done. Uh, and, and we, we need a lot of this and this is a really powerful book to help people start thinking about trust, maybe a little deeper than they think of it today. And yeah, uh, yeah. I really appreciate you you writing this book and coming on the show. Um, how can people uh, get a hold of the book and find out more about you? So if they if they come to my website, uh, www.trustunlimited.com, um, there's a blog section there. I've written a number of articles. There's some podcasts. They're not going to be as good as this one, but <laughs> but there's some podcasts there as well that people can listen to. Um, the book can be pre-ordered almost anywhere now. Okay. Um, and I, I would be super appreciative if people would just share the message. Uh, if you read the book and then want to share it with somebody else, that's fantastic. Um, really, it's about raising awareness and developing a shared vocabulary, a shared way of talking about problems that we face that allows us to get to conversations we normally don't have. Yeah, we absolutely need this in the world today. And uh, and Daryl, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing this. And this is a fantastic book. Leaders, pick this book up. It's, it's available for pre-order now called Building Trust. And uh, I highly encourage you to get this book and start thinking about trust a little bit deeper than you probably think today, because that's really where we need to go in our businesses, but also in society in general. We, we, we are splintered. We don't trust people anymore. We don't trust our institutions anymore. We got to get back to trust. This is a great book for doing that. Daryl, thank you for coming on the show and sharing all of your insight. Thanks so much, Sean. I, I could talk to you for hours. Thank you. <laughs> I know we went a little long, but I was really enjoying it. I think we just started to scratch the surface. So thank you for coming on the show. And, and, and again, leaders, dig into this book. You're going to learn a lot. Thank you. Thanks, John. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hour.